Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie The Michael Reed Show, brought to you by AirGrid. Managing and planning the national grid so that everyone has electricity when and where they need it. Wednesday morning, the 7th of February. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The passing of John Bruton is being marked far and wide as a politician who left a distinct mark locally in County Meath, nationally as a government minister, as Taoiseach and as leader of Fine Gael in opposition, as well as the important roles he played in Europe and in the EU, I beg your pardon, in the US as the EU's ambassador. In a statement issued on the death of John Bruton yesterday, the President, Michael D. Higgins, said John Bruton was a deeply committed politician who demonstrated a lifelong interest and engagement in public affairs and public service both in Ireland and internationally. His contribution to the Northern Ireland peace process during his time as Taoiseach was very significant in this work. He brought a particular sensitivity and a generous approach to inclusion with regard to the perspective of the other. Always bristling with ideas and occasionally demonstrating an impatience with the difficulties of implementation. Those of us who worked with John, be it in government or in opposition, will recall the energy which he brought to the different parts of politics. This continued in John's many contributions to the public debate in the years following his departure from office and in all of his roles, something the President says he always very much welcomed and found very refreshing. Mr Higgins concluded in saying while we were conscious and would occasionally remind each other, both in government and in the years after, of an ideological gap between us. Our conversations nearly always ended with a very particular deep laugh, which all of us who knew him will immediately recall. John will be remembered with great warmth and his contributions to the public debate greatly missed, as I say. That's part of a statement from the President of Ireland, Michael D. Higgins, following the death of John Bruton, aged 76 yesterday. Let's speak to 
Gavin Riley, political correspondent with Virgin Media News and columnist with the Mead Chronicle. A very good morning to you, Gavin. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme today. The tributes are going to continue when the doll sits this afternoon. Indeed, a number of hours have been set aside for TDs to make statements and pay tribute to John Bruton today. That's right, and this is not really the, the given practice. There is something of a, of a habit whenever a former uh, member of the House has died, and even if they are someone who served in an office as high as Taoiseach, the general custom sometimes is that, uh, although there might be some very small pro forma comments on the day, that there is still the rest of business goes ahead as per usual, and there might only be a formal set piece of statements at some point a few months down the line when the family has recovered from the initial shock of the loss so as to be able to attend themselves, to be able to hear in person some of those remarks. But I think it's a testament to um, the, the amount that John Bruton achieved in his 35 years in the doll, and in his relatively short period as Taoiseach, only about two and a half years, um, that the, the entire day's business has been shelved and put to one side uh, so that statements uh, on the death of John Bruton is all that the doll will hear today. And I think that, that in its own way is just a small token of just the esteem which he was felt. And also I thought one thing which, which might not mean very much to many people but as someone who's been around Leinster House for more years than I'd care to count at this point, I thought was quite striking yesterday as well. There is a protocol in Leinster House that even on the death of a former member, or even, as I said, someone who's, who's risen to the office of Taoiseach, uh, that the flag is not lowered to half-mast on the day. That there is a protocol that the, 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 the tricolour over Leinster House might be lowered on the day of the burial, so that whenever John, John Bruton may be laid to rest, that would be the day upon which uh, the flag would only fly at half-mast. The news yesterday, uh, within a couple of hours of it happening, the flag was lowered to half-mast anyway. And it's not usually the dumb thing, but it is just a small token of, of recognition for the amount that John Bruton achieved in his life in politics. Yeah, I think he's remembered uh, warmly by anybody who met him because he, he was a very personable person himself uh, and had no airs and graces. Yes, which is... Airs and graces are something that you would be entitled to presume that someone who had represented the, the, uh, a constituency in a county for 35 years continually would have. Someone who was in the company that he was, someone who had spent you know, five years knocking around the cabinet table in the 1980s, then spent two and a half years leading cabinet in the 90s, then went on and was looking at jobs in Europe and ended up becoming an EU ambassador, and was even touted in 2011 as a prospective candidate for the presidency uh, before Fine Gael decided to put forward uh, Gay Mitchell as the candidate on that occasion. So the, he was certainly someone who was so widely uh, respected across the spectrum. And, and in that light, you'd be forgiven for thinking that someone might have, over time, uh, begun to you know, treat themselves very seriously and to expect a certain level of recognition and, and of reception uh, wherever they go. But that simply uh, wasn't John Bruton. And one thing that really struck me this morning is uh, the former TD for the same constituency, Mead East, now a, a senator and running in Dublin Fingal, uh, Regina Doherty, um, posted a photograph yesterday of an autograph that she got when she was merely just Regina Dalton uh, when she was nine years old attending a Fine Gael Ardèche uh, in the 1980s. And she approached a man at the time not knowing that he was ever going to become party leader, not knowing that he was ever going to become Taoiseach, uh, but went up and asked for an autograph and little did she know that they would end up representing uh, the same constituency of the same county at, at different points in their career. But the, the idea that John Bruton, with all the things that he might have had on his place, uh, was still willing to, to entertain and to discuss with a nine-year-old about their, their views of the world and to encourage them to get involved in public life. I think that, that too was a measure of the man. And also quite telling is the fact that, uh, and I, I'm mindful that I'm saying this to an audience on LMFM, 
uh, that no matter what he had going on on his plate, no matter what he might have been doing, no matter where in Europe or, or in the world that he might have been, um, during his time mm-hmm. at Finnegrell and the Taoiseach, he, he was always still keen, and, and your, your predecessors on this lot, Michael, might tell you, uh, they were still always keen and still always available to pick up the phone. In fact, I, I'm currently a colleague now in Virgin Media uh, with somebody who was, at the time, working for LMFM. And they would find that even if he was on the other side of the world at some summit or on some trade mission or something, or if he was in Davos or he was in Brussels, or no matter where he might ultimately be, he would still call up LMFM on a Friday morning uh, to make himself available and to opine on what else might be going on and, and to brief the local media on things that might be going on in his constituency mm-hmm. so that a clip of them might be broadcast on that day's news or across the weekend, on the bulletins across the weekend. And You know, that's, that, mm-hmm. that might be in some way be the currency of politics, but also you'd be forgiven for thinking that somebody who has a national agenda and an international agenda uh, might sometimes take their eye off the local. Uh, and John Bruton never did. I think he no. have a particular vote because uh, of All politics is local and John Bruton certainly uh, made sure that uh, he followed that rule. Uh, indeed, uh, when we learned of his passing yesterday morning, the first thing that came to my mind, Gavin, was when he was the EU ambassador to the United States uh, he was in touch with us here uh, looking to get on the radio to talk about uh, the cost of getting a train from Laytown to Dublin, uh, which was far more expensive than that of Balbriggan and the injustice of it. Uh, I'm sure he'd be glad to have learned that's about to change this year. Uh, but there were... You'd think he'd be more concerned about the price of the Amtrak train from, from New York Penn Station to Union yeah. Station in Washington or whatever it might have been, but no, he was st- still concerned about the plight of the commuters. And, yeah. uh, and all of the issues that were important to people, whether they were potholes or footpaths, we often got uh, notes in uh, from the press office on behalf of uh, Mr. Bruton in relation to those local issues, or he would want to pay tribute to somebody uh, who had died I- in the locality. Uh, he was very much a, a county maids man. Yeah, one thing which is really striking, I saw last night a video that somebody had posted online. It was an episode of, uh, of Primetime broadcast in early 1994. And this, again, is before John Bruton had become Taoiseach, but there had just been a leadership heave against him. And John Bruton had seen that off and it began to be uh, the turning of the tide where it might have seemed like he was he was never going to make it to the highest job. And by the end of the year, he had actually gotten it through one circumstance or another anyway. But it was very striking that the, 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 the feature on Primetime uh, carried him arriving home uh, to Dunboyne. So he had seen off the leadership he that evening in Leinster House and he had gone home to Dunboyne that night. And um, the warmth of the reception that there was from him in the local pub. Mm. Like he, he walked into the pub, he was immediately heralded. Obviously the TV cameras knew that he was going to be there. But this cheer erupted in the pub as soon as he walked in. And again, this is someone who at the time had not been Taoiseach. You might even have considered him to be some degree an accidental party leader because he sort of found himself plunged into the job after Alan Jukes resigned in 1990. So he wasn't someone who who ever necessarily had those aspirations, but yet he was just held in such warmth. And the reason why it's so striking is because I I don't think these days, that maybe this says more about the personalities or or the decline of pop culture, but but I don't know if we'd ever have the same uh, in modern-day Ireland now. If there was to be a leadership heave against Micheál Martin and then he was to, to walk into the pub in, in Court McSharry uh, where, he, where he spends his holiday time. I, I don't know if you'd see that kind of level of, of rousing roar. If Leo Varadkar were, were challenged and then he walked in for a pub in, in Myles and Castle Knock in his local, um, I, I don't know if there would be that kind of eruption. I mean, to be honest, even if Bertie Ahern were challenged in his, in his prime and then was, was going into Fagan's afterwards, I, I don't know if the whole place would be on tenterhooks waiting for him to arrive to throw a party. Mm. And I think in its own way, that too is another just a, a hallmark of the, 
the esteem in which it was held. I mean, it can't just have been Fine Gael loyalists or Bruton loyalists who were in the pub that night, but everyone was pleased to see that he'd he'd shaken off this this uh, this this road bump and that he'd been able to get back on the road. And and that, that in its own way too is is just its own little uh, superficial um, illustration of of just how he was held by his countrymen. As a conservative right-wing politician uh, in the day, probably not surprising that he was compared to Margaret Thatcher. Uh, It was a a time of recession, poverty, but of course the Troubles dominated, and indeed uh, I think the Troubles dominated uh, the political career of John Bruton uh, during his time in Irish politics. Absolutely, and I think that there was a couple of pieces in today's papers which I thought uh, really hit this nail on the head, and this is something that I tried to, to touch upon when I was, I was throwing together something last minute for this week's Mead Chronicle um, after the news broke yesterday morning. Um, that there are, in a way, that there were, there were two great things that the, the Irish state, when it was established in the early 1920s, there were two great failures uh, throughout the first 70 years of its existence. One was economic dependence and economic uh, progress, that the country had always seemed to be, to some degree or another, underperforming through through one level of mismanagement or a poorly uh, conceived policy. And the other, of course, was the lingering issue of a territorial claim over the north and there never being true, lasting, sustainable peace and understanding between the various communities of the north. And John Burton was only in power for two and a half years, but, but when you consider the progress that was made on those two fronts, what a two and a half years it was. I mean, mm. this is a man who was a fiscal conservative but was leading a government alongside Labour and and fairly unrepentant radicals in the Democratic Left Party uh, agreed to, it it was under his watch that corporate tax was reduced from the levels that it previously was uh, to 12.5%, which of course now we know was the linchpin of all the foreign investments that followed and the way in which the country is now. Uh, It was under his watch, albeit under a Labour Party minister, uh, that third-level tuition fees were scrapped. So Mm. suddenly, overnight, you had this country immediately becoming this very low-tax economy with an English-speaking workforce that was increasingly becoming better and better educated. And, And how could you possibly... Have, have reached the economic levels that we did, but for those two things being done during his tenure. And, of course, on the north, um, he was regularly derided, and one time even in a Freudian slip, Albert Reynolds calling him John Unionist. But I think he was the first person in charge in Dublin to fully realise that to have anything sustainable in the north, that you'd need to bring the extremes of both communities together. And that meant, although he despised Sinn Féin and he completely... Uh, objected to any kind of uh, you know violent insurrection to try and force the Brits out of Ireland. He understood that there would never be peace without the IRA and Sinn Féin being party to the agreement. Moreover, he knew that you were never going to have this overthrow of British rule through force, that you were going to have to have some accommodation where the Unionist majority in Northern Ireland were happy with their lot. So although it was others, particularly Tony Blair, Bertie Ahern, George Mitchell, who, who were able to get the ball over the line, it was John Bruton and John Major who were able to get the ball rolling. And I don't know in truth if any other Taoiseach at the time who didn't have the same sensibilities about the Unionist population in the North would have been able to, to get the ball rolling in the way that John Bruton ultimately did. OK, he entered politics aged 18 when he joined Fine Gael in Dunboyne. That was in 1965. Four years later, in 69, uh, he was elected to, to the Dáil at the age of 
of uh, 22. He uh, was then to join the front bench in 1972. He was a junior minister or parliamentary secretary, as it was known then, between 73 and 77, and became the Minister for Finance in 1981. In 1982, he, he could be uh, accused of bringing down the government of the day uh, and something that has never been forgotten. I'm not sure it'll ever be forgotten with our listeners, but the VAT on children's footwear uh, and children's shoes uh, really was uh, a step too far for some. But if he was likened to Margaret Thatcher, uh, as he certainly was by some back in those dark days of the early 80s, uh, he broke all of the rules. He certainly acted in a way that Margaret Thatcher wouldn't have when he went into government uh, in 1994 with the Labour Party, as you say, but Democratic left as well. It was unthinkable at the time. Yeah, because when you think the Democratic left ultimately folded into the Labour Party, and they were certainly ideologically more more closely aligned. But if you just think about the origin of Democratic left, Pontius de Rossa being the party leader at the time, and that he had been a member of, of uh, you know Sinn Féin, the Workers' Party, and in their own way, they had been political representatives of a certain degree of IRA violence. And when when John Bruton just despised that that level of thinking so much but that he understood that, well, this is the government that works, these are the people that were elected by the public, and they have to be listened to. Um, one thing which really resonated with me yesterday, I was speaking to Helen McEntee, who, of course, is the indirect successor of, of John Bruton, because it was Helen's late father, Shane, that everyone will remember, who, who won the seat in the by-election after John Bruton finally stood down from the door. Uh, she made one very salient point, that his one real legacy was learning to listen and to come up with an accommodation that would suit everyone. I mean, as I mentioned, that that's what worked in Northern Ireland. He, he was finally prepared to realise that there were multiple points of view, mm. all of which had to be accommodated. But when it came to, to running domestic governments, yes, I mean, the, the, there was, there was no way on paper that a government with fiscal conservatives like in, in Fine Gael and those who were, like I said, unrepentant, unashamed radicals like in Democratic Left, um, that there would be a, a government that might you know, reduce everyday fees for people, but also massively slash the tax on, on corporate entities and corporate America. Like, it, it's, it's, it's mad to think that something like that was as coherent as it was, and yet he was able to lead it without there ever being any sense of, you know, the house about to crumble for, for the two and a half years that he was. Just just rewinding back to one mm. bit, by the way, you, you mentioned the VAT on children's shoes. Sometimes I think that history has been a little bit unkind to him on this, because, of course, yes, everyone remembers it was VAT on children's shoes, which ultimately brought the house down uh, in 1982 and led to the, the, the general election of that year. Well, there were two things about it. Firstly, the vote in the door, which actually didn't pass, which prompted Gareth Fitzgerald to say, screw this, right, I'm off to the park to see President Hillary. It, it wasn't actually a VAT in children's shoes itself. The first vote that night was on raising the price of a pint. <laughs> and technically speaking, yep. it is that upon which the government fell. But the other thing about the children's shoes, uh, apparently he, he had been slightly uh, sent up the proverbial creek without a paddle on that front because the mandarins in the Department of Finance were concerned not so much about VAT on children's shoes, but they were complaining that some women with smaller feet were able to avail of the discount because their shoes were the same size as those of children, and therefore you had inequality where women with bigger feet were paying VAT and women with smaller feet weren't. Mm. So the mandarins wanted that anomaly closed. They said, OK, we just have to implement VAT on all shoes. That's what then was interpreted as putting VAT on everyone's shoes, including children. And unfortunately, it was that 
slightly bum steer by the mandarins in Marion Street, which ultimately brought the house down on him. Yeah, well, it was always the price of a, a pint, the cigarettes and uh, the price of petrol uh, at uh, the time. The old reliables, as they were called, that people used to watch out for in the budget uh, announcements. Uh, but uh, the Vata on shoes certainly uh, will be remembered uh, for some time to come. Uh, it was, uh, and, and yes, he got the finance gig back four years mm-hmm. later. And when you think of the ignominy in which it ended first time, to get it back again is, is a level of the trust that he held in everyone else. Sure. Uh, but uh, it was peculiar how he became Taoiseach. He became Taoiseach without an election. Uh, as you say, uh, there was this rainbow co- coalition of Fine Gael, Labour and uh, Democratic Left. Uh, but the Labour Party had been in coalition with Fianna Fáil. Uh, and then came the controversy about Father Brendan Smith, which brought the government uh, down. Uh, but Labour, uh, rather than pulling out altogether, uh, formed this coalition with Fine Gael and the Democratic left. Uh, so that in itself was uh, a one-off, was it, in history? I, I don't remember any other government being formed without an election. Yeah, there's never been a case uh, in, in midterm other than that one where, where the government completely changed. I mean, obviously, there's been a few times where a T-shirt has handed over in the middle of a dull term, but you've never had um, some parties entering government at the start of a term and in the middle of a term, a completely different government forming. And and it's worth knowing for, for people who maybe aren't old enough to remember exactly the way in which all of that worked out. As you mentioned, Fianna Fáil and Labour forming a fairly novel and unprecedented coalition in 1992. Uh, John Bruton had tried to pull together the numbers. He was, even at that time, prepared to do a deal with, with Labour and indeed with the Democratic left, but the numbers weren't necessarily there, and Fianna Fáil were offering slightly bigger sweeteners to the Labour Party, so Labour went, yeah, cut a lot with that at the time. Um, Fine Gael and Labour and the Democratic left, have, at the start of that term, would not actually have had a full majority in the Dáil. There would have been a couple of votes short, they would have been dependent on a couple of independents from outside to maybe sort of do some sort of sweetheart deal or have some sort of uh, confidence and supply arrangement. So it would have been a minority government. But as you mentioned, the, the Father Brennan Smith affair, the, the resignation of the Attorney General, Harry Whelan, who then in a fairly last minute and disastrously conceived idea by, by, by Fianna Fáil was appointed as a judge of the High Court, which was the final straw for Labour, who then immediately pulled out. In the meantime, there had been a couple of by-elections, and suddenly the numbers that wouldn't have worked on day one were now suddenly plausible. Uh, and there was a sense of the wind being in, in Fine Gael sales a little bit. Mm. So there was quite good local, uh, local and European elections. Sorry, not local, uh, but European elections for Fine Gael in 1994. They had done fairly well. That arrested the decline under John Bruton, who, as I mentioned earlier, had already seen off a leadership heave in February. So he sees off the heave in February. A couple of by-elections go their way. They have a good European elections. And then suddenly there is a clearly um, illustrated and articulated view from the public that actually this is the sort of government we might like. So then when push comes to shove, late 1994, suddenly the numbers work. Do you want to plunge the government Mm. or the country into an election just shortly after Christmas? Or can this work? And evidently they were able to make it work. And again... It came together in fairly short notice circumstances, but he made it work. And the consensus at the time was it wouldn't last a wet day, but uh, it uh, filled out its full term. Um, uh, he will undoubtedly be remembered as paving the way for the peace process. Uh, as mentioned earlier on, statements are going to be made across uh, the floor of uh, the Chamber of uh, Dáil Éireann today. How, how do you think Sinn Féin will remember John Bruton? <laughs> It's a very interesting question. I think that there there might be an argument. I mean, I, I presume, of course, Sinn Féin will have to approach today's proceedings with a, a certain level of, of generosity. Um, Sinn Féin will probably do well to remember or to note that it was really at John Bruton's behest, even though he despised what they stood for, 
um, that they were involved in the talks that led to Good Friday in the first place. I mean, there was very much an attitude at the time that this was the, the unrepentant political wing of the IRA. These people were the spokespersons for terrorism. These people were unapologetic in wreaking destruction and havoc of all sorts and that they had no business being at any kind of a table with respectable people. John Bruton, much as he hated them, at least fully understood that there was never going to be a peaceful solution without them being at the table to, to negotiate and to mould that in their own way. So I think they would do well to, to, to remember that. And I mean, and ultimately, and I, I make this point today in my piece in the Chronicle, if you look at where we are now, you know, where we were in 1998 when Good Friday bore its fruit and where we are now, you know, at the weekend just gone, we had a new Northern Ireland power-sharing executive where everyone stands up and takes an oath committed to peace and harmony between the peoples of Northern Ireland. It is led by the daughter of an IRA prisoner and the daughter of a loyalist gunrunner prisoner. And to think that Northern Ireland has come so far where people who are from such diametrically opposed backgrounds are able to sit down and work for everyone's benefit. That is ultimately the tree uh, which grew from the seed that was planted by John Bruton. And, and no finer tribute or testimony can there be than to say that that is ultimately the, the fruit that was born by the process that John Bruton kicked off. Gavin, thank you so much uh, for joining us uh, this morning to remember the late John Bruton. Gavin Riley, political correspondent with Virgin Media News, is also a columnist with The Mead Chronicle. 086-1800-658 The Michael Reed Show brought to you by Airgrid managing and planning the national grid so that everyone has electricity when and where they need it As you know, the Minister for Education has asked all schools to record all incidents of bullying that uh, they experience. uh, But does that include incidents between teachers and students? Well, that's a question that's being asked by Garod O'Rean, who's a teacher himself and founder of the group Say No to School Uniforms. And Garod joins us now. And a very good morning to you. And thanks indeed for joining us. Uh, The question you're asking realistically is, if teachers are bullying students over school uniforms. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's uh, worth considering, definitely worth considering, because, um, you know, obviously bullying is a big issue in Irish schools, uh, and the, the, the Oireachtas uh, Committee on Education has said that uh, in, in all sorts of schools, rural, urban, etc. Uh, Jigsaw, that mental health, youth mental health organisation in t- 2019, they they uh, found that you know 39% of uh, secondary school students have, have have been bullied. So so there is an issue with bullying in schools. So you know it's great that the minister is taking another step to try and build out the picture as to what exactly is going on by by mm. asking schools to collate data on incidents of bullying. So um, I suppose the point that that I'm making is that uh, well why doesn't she go one step further? and uh, also collect data on the culture of bullying within the school in terms of the the institutional side of the school, you know, because, uh, and I suppose there is, you know, I, I would put the case that there is, a, you know, while, while individual teachers are all, you know, m- mostly doing their best and there's no issues, obviously, yeah. uh, they're, they're kind to students, they're, they're supportive of students, they abhor any sort of bullying, um, uh, there, there is a, a case that well, the systems within school could also be, you know, op- oppressive. And I would say that uh, that that there's definitely a prima facie a prima facie case for that, because mm. you know we, we we do have I would say a history of bullying uh, by schools of students um, and uh, of teachers bullying yeah. students. You mean? 
of, of teachers yeah. bullying mm-hmm. students there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and in some cases, beating them black and blue. Yes, that, mm. that's, the, that's what I'm, the point I'm making is that, you know, in my, in my memory, uh, I remember going to school, to primary school, and being, you know, students being beaten every day in, in my class. I was beaten occasionally. Lots of boys uh, in the school were beaten occasionally. Some were beaten every day. Mm. Um, and that was considered acceptable and normal by society at the time. Uh, and, and that was part of school culture. Indeed, and I'm sure you remember some teachers relished uh, beating their students up. Exactly, and sure, sure, you know, what has come out in terms of abuse of students in schools over the years by, you know, individual teachers is appalling. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, but, but the, the, the question that I'm raising is, well, to what extent is the system, uh, is the system... Responsible. So that, that we continue to bully students, the teachers continue to bully students, albeit in a different way, given that corporal punishment is a thing of the past. Well, I, I'm, I'm more focused, you know, there are obviously individual teachers operate the system, but the point I'm making is that the system of, uh, the cultural system of schools can be oppressive and can be bullying. Um, and and I, I'm, I'm saying that because like l- looking at the statistics on 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 bullying in schools i mean uh you know there's there was a, there was a major study done in in uh, 2018 uh, at a european level by statista and they looked at 40 uh, over 40 uh, countries bullying in schools in 40 countries and there's out of that 40 countries there's only 8 of them only 8 of that 40 were were countries where uh, uniforms were the norm mm. okay uh, Ireland being one of them. And all of those eight countries were in the top half in terms of bullying levels. Right. And actually, actually, three of them were in the top five. Right. So that, you know, out of those, out of those 40 countries, the, in the top five countries, three of them uh, had uniforms as standard. Now, and do you believe that that's, that's more than a coincidence? Well, I think it's worth exploring as to, as to is there an issue there? Uh, is, is there a connection between, uh, between bullying and uniforms? Now, the reason why I'm saying that is because when, when corporal punishment was eventually banned in the 1980s, uh, there is a, a, a case to be made. Now, this might seem a shock, but there's a case to be made that what took over in terms of uh, what schools as, a, as, a, as, a, as an organisation, as organisations began to use to control students was actually uniforms. Now, it's not me that's saying that. It's a professor of organisational behaviour in, in London, Andre Spicer, uh, who, 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 who's saying that. The mm. professor of, who studies how organisations operated, he makes the case, he made the case recently that uh, there was a panic in schools. About, and so it's about control and fear. So I suppose the, the, the bottom line I'm talking about is that why would schools use corporate punishment? Why would they use uniforms? It's to control students. That's what his point is. is. So mm. the fear among schools of, of losing control of students. So when corporal punishment was the main, the main way that, that, that stu- uh, schools used corporal punishment, uh, or the main way that they controlled students, when that was gone, there was a panic in the 80s about how they were going to control students. And one of the things that, that, that took its place was uh, becoming strict on things like uniforms. Okay, mm. And so Professor... Andre Spicer makes that link between a culture within a, within a system that uh, is trying to control students. Mm. So, therefore, I, I think 
you know, it's worth uh, it's worth examining. Yeah. So, Isn't it possible, though, that students will um, suffer that type of bullying throughout their lives? Uh, I mean, they will if they become a nurse or an airline pilot. Uh, uniforms are, are commonplace in many professions. Yeah, but I mean, you have to separate out adults and children here, okay? So mm. so you, you can choose to be a nurse if you want. You know, you can choose to be a, an airline pilot if you want. You can choose to be a prison guard or a, or a, or a guard if mm. you want, okay? And you know what you're getting into and you've got, you've got, you've got the control over that. But when you're, going, when you're going to school, everybody has to do uh, wear uniforms. Now, I'm not saying that people shouldn't wear school uniforms. If they want to wear school uniforms, mm. fine. But the, the, the bullying aspect is about the punishment of those who breach the school uniform rules for some reason. Right. So, uh, uh, you know, and in, 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 a, in a culture in school where, where uh, we're saying to people, uh, we're, as teachers, we're saying to students to respect, respect uh, diversity. That's, that's what we say. But mm. then we end up suppressing it because we kind of outlaw or punish anybody who's, who's different in terms of how, how, they, how they dress themselves. Mm. So but it's also, apart from that, it's also anti-educational to think that that we, we institutionalise children into thinking that, uh, you know, they must wear uniforms or they can't survive without them. OK, uh, are we not teaching them that at times uh, there will be dress codes? Uh, even if you don't have a, a uniform at work, uh, you may uh, be told to smarten up if you turn up in a, a raggedy pair of trousers or something. Well... Dress code is one thing, but a uniform is a different thing. Okay, so I'm not saying that that there shouldn't be, mm. you know, standards in terms of dress. You know, you know, uh, but but a uniform is a different thing. And putting children from four years of age into uniforms. I mean, when you think about it, it's 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 unnatural to, to for children to spend most of their childhood in uniforms. Uh, so we're, as I say, we're we're, mm. we're 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 saying don't judge people as teachers. But then on, on don't judge people on outward appearances. Mm. Uh, but then that's exactly what we do. The only people uh, I know, my my uh, wife is Italian, and uh, she, they went. You know, she went through all her school life, no uniforms. She said nobody ever commented on 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 what they were wearing. No teachers commented. It wasn't an issue. And that's that's mm. the experience across those other you know thirty two okay. countries in Europe. That don't that don't have uniforms. Well, as a school teacher, Grode, I'm sure you know more about how young people think than I do. But uh, have you heard many young people complain about having to wear uniforms to school? Yes, I, I have. I have um, because you know a lot of the time uniforms are uncomfortable for a start. Uh, they don't necessarily suit the weather on the day, so they'd like to be able to to you know some you know very very uh, what, what would be considered you know, high standard students, like academic students, all students, you know, I've heard complaints from a lot of them about, uh, you know, strict school rules on, on uniform and the discomfort it brings. Now, others uh, like the uniforms. You know, so, some students like the uniforms. Some parents like the uniforms. Mm. Great. Let them. If they want to wear a uniform, let them wear it. Let them wear the same clothes every day if they want. But don't force it on other people. So, you know, in school, we do already collect a lot of data on punishments. Okay. We do collect that. All the, the systems we use, like VSWare, uh, you know, teachers use that regularly to, you know, with a click of a button, uh, you know, they, they, they can report somebody for something or they can report a punishment. Mm. What I'm saying is that the minister should, should collect the data as to see how many, like, I, I reckon about 50% of punishments are related to uniform, 50%. Mm. And I think kids coming to school 
afraid of, you know, getting punished because they've got the wrong colour socks on. Uh, you know, I think that that's there's no need for that. Mm. And there's a much better way. I mean, there's a much better way. Just if I, I know um, Colin O'Connor, who's who's a principal in in County Cork, he he wrote recently that allowing children to be themselves in school, you know, leads to a much happier place. It leads to light and levity on the corridors and on the in the classroom. So why not? Why not? You know. Eliminate that as, mm. a, as, as, as a way to operate. Eliminate okay. that as a way to, to control students. And from your experience, uh, for what breaches of uh, the Uniform Code, if that's a way of putting it, would children be pulled up on, uh, and what will the penalty be? Well, it varies from school to school, but, I mean, first and foremost, being, being pulled up and reprimanded on some minor thing, like, for example, the colour of your shoelaces, nice. um, that that's... That's kind of ridiculous, you know, and it's, it's intimidating for an adult. For, it's intimidating for a child to be stopped by an adult. And I, and I hear them sometimes on the corridors talking, you know, and it's, you know, expressing fear that somebody's going to now give out to me. When I go into class now, somebody's going to give out to me now because I'm wearing, you know, this colour hoodie or I'm wearing, you know, something. You know, uh, it does engender a culture of fear and it does engender a culture of, um, you know, people... Sometimes, to be honest with you, even sometimes not wanting to go to school because of it. Mm. I mean, a, a, cult, a, cu- a culture of obedience, though, some would argue. Yeah, I mean, uh, that, that's right. Yeah, culture of obedience. And, and uh, you know, in, in, for example, in, in, in lots of schools, uh, students are obedient, but they still get punished for, for, for you know, uh, minor breaches of uniform. Mm. I know I was going to say there, uh, I, uh, I was speaking to one parent whose child, you know, she was having difficulty getting her child to go to school at all. You know, she, he, was, he was basically refusing to go to school. And it was a big, big struggle at home to get him to go to school. Then he goes into school and he's pulled up because he's not wearing his tie. Uh, and he's sent home. Now, you know, that type of thing has to be eradicated. Um, you know, so I suppose that the, the main thing I'm trying to say is there is a cultural issue here. It's not about individual teachers. Obviously, individual teachers operate the system. They follow the orders that they're given, and you know they, they they're doing their best. But as a culture, we shouldn't be depending on trying to control what students are wearing uh, to control their behaviour. Okay, we should uh, we should use other methods to control their behaviour, like focusing actually on their behaviour and pulling them up on misbehaviour and supporting them. If, if necessary, uh, uh, to, by, by, by displaying, by good example, that we respect them uh, and we don't we respect diversity and we pull them up if they're doing something that's wrong. Not if we don't pull them up because they're wearing something that is in breach of some kind of silly rule mm-hmm. about uniform. Okay. Uniforms are quite are quite silly, really, and um, you know the, the, the implementation of them and see, seeing seeing teachers kind of. Uh, lining them up and examining them like if they're on these kind of military inspections oh, really? looking them up and down. Mm, mm. Of course yeah. that happens. I how, didn't know how that do, happened, how, yeah. do people, mm. how do people think that uniforms get enforced? You know, right. okay. Students are, are lined up and military style and examined as wow. okay. wearing there. I, I'm obviously know? very removed. It's a long time since I was in a, a, a classroom, let alone a school, uh, but uh, I wasn't aware of that, Garode. They're very interesting yeah. arguments you've been making. Thank you for making them with us once again. Well, if, if, hello, if anybody wants to reach out to us and 
help us in any way, they can contact us on Instagram. Say no to school uniforms. Indeed. Thank you. Garod O'Rean of the group Say No to School Uniforms. Call Michael now. 0419832000. The Michael Reed Show, brought to you by AirGrid, managing and planning the national grid so that everyone has electricity when and where they need it. Now to some of uh, the comments coming to us, thanks to Mag Y in touch with us uh, following our discussion with Garod O'Rean of Say No to School Uniforms. She says, Michael, that man was talking uh, through his hat. Uniforms are a must. Otherwise, there would be a free-for-all uh, and it would result in bullying. Students bullying other students because they're not wearing the latest thing in fashion. It would end up becoming a fashion show, in fact, she says, every day and at great expense to parents who can't afford it. Mary in Trim says, Michael, what about parents who can't afford to wear different clothes, who can't afford clothes, different clothes, I suppose, for their children? Only problem with uniforms is the price of them. It's unreal how certain shops charge for crests and tracksuits and so on. Thanks, uh, Mary. Thanks, Magui, for that. Somebody else uh, on the same topic saying it might be better to address the issue of bullying amongst staff members. It starts from the top. It would be very interesting if uh, the Minister addressed this issue. Happy teachers and SNAs equal happy school, happy children and so on. All children should be allowed to wear tracksuits in school, says somebody else. Uh, then uh, we'd Patsy in Carrick in touch with us, saying he's a book of quotations uh, which cites John Bruton as saying, I'm sick of answering questions about the effing peace process. Yeah, I don't think there's a, a word of a, a lie in that. Apparently it relates uh, to an interview on radio in Cork. Uh, this uh, is going... Uh, back uh, some time. Uh, obviously, uh, the peace process uh, was top of uh, the agenda. John Bruton reckoned at the time uh, that he spent 70% of his time talking about Northern Ireland. Uh, the IRA had just uh, declared uh, a ceasefire and uh, he was asked uh, about all of this uh, by a radio presenter. He said, I'm sick of being asked about the effing peace process. Uh, but apparently he sent on a personal note of apology later to the same report. Now, speaking of the peace process, indeed, speaking of John Bruton, I'm sure John Bruton would have been delighted to see Stormont back up and running on Saturday. And indeed, it's a functioning government that's at work now for the people of Northern Ireland. That's two years after the collapse of the institutions. Let's speak to a native of Drogheda, David Rossiter, who's a councillor for the Alliance Party in the Hollywood and Planned Boy constituency. And a very good morning to you, David, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, Historic uh, to see a Sinn Féin First Minister apart from anything else, uh, but great to see the political institutions back up uh, and running. What are you hearing from people uh, in the North uh, about uh, the return to politics as such in Northern Ireland? Yeah, good morning, Michael. I think generally speaking, chatting to people, there's a sense of relief, I think is probably the the main emotion that people are feeling, I think people were, were really coming to the end of their their patience and the end of their wick with with the with the situation. Um, you know, with the assembly being down for so many years, um, not just in, in this time but in previous times as well. So there is a real sense that you know Northern Ireland was 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 needing to to come to that crossroads, needed to needed to take the step forward. And uh, I think the the main thing really is is about the. Um, the public services. I think people are really relieved now. 
that each of the, the departments in Northern Ireland now have a minister that can go ahead and can make decisions and uh, they can they can divide up a budget for, for those departments to spend now. Because mm. um, the, the, the impact of those, those crumbling public services on, on people's lives was, was, it was really impinging on people's quality of life. So, yeah, it's a real sense of relief, I think, for people that this place is now um, back back and, and, and running again and um, there's, there's, a, there's a sense of, of hope and optimism again. Okay, and questions about the funding. Uh, I think uh, all MLAs have signed a letter to the British government saying that funding is inadequate for Northern Ireland. It's a 3.9 billion euro package uh, that was announced by the British government before Christmas. That's 3.3 billion pounds. 580 million of that is to pay for these public sector pay increases uh, before you start on anything else. Yeah, that's correct. There's there's obviously been a long period of time now where without having the government um, People working in the NHS, people working in health, teachers, uh, they their pay has not kept pace with inflation. Um, so there, there has been a package agreed, obviously, with Westminster uh, that can go towards negotiating those those pay deals uh, with trade unions. And that's, that's a very positive um, step forward. But, you know, again, it's, it's the, the level of cost to try and get this pace back going after a number of years of stasis, is, it really is quite high. So to give you an example, you know, different to, to the public sector pay, but you look at the, the roads infrastructure, you know, roads need to be consistently maintained. So when you get a period where the budget is quite low for the Department of Infrastructure and roads are not maintained, you then have to spend even more money to try and get them back up to, to code and to scratch. So it's things like that where the, the Assembly and the MLAs, you know, are quite united at this point in, in saying to the... Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. To Westminster that, you know, there, there is a package on the table and, and that, is, that is welcome. But in order to, to really get public services back to where they need to be, uh, there needs to be an increase in, in funding as well. All right. Uh, and it doesn't compare to what Scotland and Wales receive, apparently. Yeah, so this is this has been something that um, a number of the parties have have been working on. There's 
there's a thing called the Barnett Consequential. I'll, I'll try not to bore your, your listeners too much with that, um, Michael, but effectively it's a, it's a rate um, that, is, that is worked out um, that says, you know, as part of the whole of the UK budget, um, you know, when the UK government sits down and does its budget for the year, X amount, you know, goes to Northern Ireland in order for, for the, the sovereign institutions to then spend that money. And so really it's, it's, it's about looking at that rate again. There's, there's a, a sense and a feeling that actually um, that rate doesn't hold, uh, hold up when you compare the level of spending then in, in Wales and, and, and in Scotland as well. Mm. So there's a real sense that you know, Northern Ireland has been, you know, financially has been, has been left behind. And I think a lot of people will, will recognise that. You know, you know, you know, we're talking about uh, you know, some of the border regions here. I know maybe some of your listeners based in Dundalk and, and, and Cooley when they cross the border into Newry. Um, and, and beyond, you know, you, you'll see that there is a, a real uh, disparity and um, a difference that that has grown um, even wider during these last couple of years of, of, of collapse. So, yeah, it really is about getting Northern Ireland back on a, on a steady financial footing now at this point. OK, uh, how does funding compare to Scotland and Wales if you include money coming from uh, the Republic, do you think, David? Because the Taoiseach, Leo Radker, was saying uh, that the Irish government uh, has invested millions in Northern Ireland infrastructure uh, through the Shared Island uh, project and it's going to put a lot more money uh, into uh, investing into Northern Ireland for that matter. Yeah, I think I think that's a very it is a very welcome move because I think it's a recognition from the Irish government, but also uh, probably a recognition from the EU as well that there's there's been a gap in, in funding there. You know, Northern Ireland would have received a lot of, of EU money um, in in the past, and obviously that has that has dried up. And there's been you know various commitments from the from the UK and Irish government to try um, and find and find the you know find the money that for that short shortfall, and a, a lot of those. A lot of those gaps that would have appeared um, from that EU money, it would have been helping you know small charities um, in, in doing doing bits of um, poverty relief work and and you're talking about even groups that run you know sort of food banks and things like that. So you know any any sort of um, you know bit of a package or of support that can come from from Dublin really uh, it, it is welcome and you know it, it recognises that you know Ireland North and South has a lot of shared uh, infrastructure. You know, I don't. I don't think mm. a lot of people realise that. You know, our, our electricity grid, our, our energy grid, all those kind of things. Uh, we we work that out on an all island basis because it's just you know it, it makes more it's more practical to do that. Yeah. And um, so you know, it makes it makes it's in the Irish government's interest to to ensure that. Uh, that sort of shared infrastructure that we have on our island is, is well funded as well. Mm. And uh, the Irish government uh, took the surprising step, uh, I, I thought, uh, of saying that it was going to pay for the construction of the Narrow Water Bridge. Originally, it was to be funded uh, predominantly by the European Union, but uh, then by uh, the uh, Northern Ireland uh, Assembly, uh, as well as the Irish government, uh, but all of that changed o- over a period of uh, time. Uh, I don't think anybody north of the border would have been arguing with <laughs> the decision of the Irish government for that matter. No, I don't think so. No, but it's it again. It's, it's uh, I think it is it is welcome because it does um, you know that that particular infrastructure project really is a is a benefit to. To both sides of the border, there isn't it? You know, it's going to lead to an increased level, um, hopefully, of, of trade and economy for for both those communities. Um, but even just from a, from a cultural point of view, you know, Michael, it's, you know, me as a southerner living up here, I, I try and do as much as I can to try and uh, get people from both sides of um, of the of the island to 
to engage with each other, to mm. communicate with each other, and to, you know, it's a way in which we can we can really try and, and, and build a way forward. So I think that sort of uh, structural investment, that sort of capital investment, uh, yeah, it's, it's absolutely very welcome in, in, a, in a sense of Hmm. Um, bridging communities that have been been separated for too long. All right, uh, as I mentioned that, yes, that you're from Drogheda. I'm sure a lot of people listening to us will know you well, David, uh, an elected councillor now north of the border. And I read a, a letter that you wrote to the Irish Times towards the end of January, in which you said not a single voter raised concerns with you about being from the Republic. I suppose uh, that tells its own story. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it was it was really it was really encouraging uh, last May when the the local elections were happening up here. Um, but yeah, not not you know the area where I live is a is a relatively you know it's a relatively unionist area. Parts of the of the constituency would be um, a little bit more mixed, but you know by and large a, a very very more a unionist sort of leaning um, constituency. And as I knocked the door, I had really great conversations with people um, who were really you know curious to know. You know why? Why had I moved to Northern Ireland, and and why was I putting myself forward for for election? But yeah, not not one person you know raised it in terms of you know this is a negative aspect. We we, we you know this mm. is this is um this is not the sort of the way the way we want um, politics to work in Northern Ireland. So yeah, it was it was a very I think I think it was a real sign of um, the changes that are happening in Northern Irish society, and in a lot of ways, the Alliance Party represents that that positive change where. You know, people want to let go of the past. They want to let go of religion, um, and they want to build a Northern Irish society that is, is, is first of all, stable, um, and the, the economy is growing and, and things like that. So, hmm. yeah, people were much more interested in, in in hearing those sort of views than necessarily knowing, you know, was I was I from Drogheda or not? You know, hmm. and why did you decide to move north and seek election? Well, we we'd, myself and my wife, we had moved here for, for work, actually. So before we had, uh, or I'd, I'd gotten involved with Alliance Party, um, basically the, the pandemic had happened, obviously, and uh, we wanted to, to move back to uh, the island of Ireland, at least. And um, our jobs at the time had some uh, a satellite office in Belfast. So, uh, yeah, we, we, we took the plunge. Gives me an, an hour and 20 minutes drive back down to Drogheda to see my family on a Sunday and, and, uh, and see my folks. But... Um, also do do life um, in in Northern Ireland as well, and you know we when we moved we the more we chatted to people um, we we really felt that there was a real change um, in Northern Irish society. We were we were among a number of people really who were moving back to Northern Ireland, um, you know people who had grown up here and had moved away because of the troubles. And there was, there was a we, we the more we chatted to people we found more and more people who were moving yeah moving back home to to start their life to. And their kids to to, to to good schools, and it was a real sense for for us um, that there was a real uh, shift in direction. And you know, I think I think we are starting to see the signs of that in mm. the political system. But you know, there still is a need for the the political system and the institutions maybe to catch up with that level of change in our in Northern Irish society. Okay, well, good to talk to you once again, David, and thank you indeed for joining us on the program today. David Rossiter is a councillor for the Alliance Party in the Hollywood and Clandboy constituency. The Michael Reed Show, brought to you by Airgrid, managing and planning the national grid so that everyone has electricity when and where they need it. Now we're joined by Fine Gael TD for Meath West, uh, Damien English, uh, to remember the late uh, John Bruton. Good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme today, Damien. Uh, h- how will you remember Mr. Bruton? 
Good morning, Michael, and, and all the listeners, and thanks for having me on. Um, first of all, Michael, just condolences to all John's uh, family, Canola, and, and, and Matthew, and Emily, Juliana, Mary Elizabeth, Richard, and Mary, but all his other friends and wider family as well. Um, how do I remember John Bruton? I suppose for me, um, without a doubt, the politician you'd want to be is what you'd see in John Bruton. I think he, he represented the best in any of you that wants to be in politics a man of integrity, uh, an honest man, always believed. In, in doing the right thing or certainly trying to do the right thing or get to that space. Um, short-term solutions, long-term thinking. But it really, his interest in politics was to make an impact. John wasn't just in it for the sake of it. It was actually to do good, make a difference, make an impact. Um, but I, I think, I know you've had probably plenty of commentary over the last day about his national role and international role. But on a local level, John's service to County Mead was unreal and trust me as a TD that followed him very hard to match because he was just everywhere uh, and any door you knock on around the country John has been there and had been there multiple times many times I'd knock on the door and uh, the, the people in the house would bring me out a letter that got from John Bruton 15, 20 years earlier you know he was he was always apart from being that national politician he was such a local politician yeah. and really believed in giving a, a top class quality service I think John was one of the first TDs to start a clinic schedule uh, and actually be go around and meet people uh, in their areas, be it in the local hotel or a pub mm. or an office. And he, he, he set a really high bar with the number of places he would visit every week to be available. And I remember then um, my first probably canvas with him, being in the back of the car and he'd be going between meetings and he would just stop the car and say, here, let's, let's knock on these 10 doors and meet people. He was really, mm. and, I, and I learned from that, and that to me that's really, really important, that as a politician you have to be always in touch and meeting people and talking to people. So no matter where he was all over the world, John, I think most weeks would be in Mead, knocking on a few doors, talking to people in the clinic, but keeping in touch. So he always had his feet on the ground. And to me, public service, um, I would say my introduction to John was probably as a young person coming through school. I mean, I wasn't big into politics when I was a kid, um, but I still remember the John Bruton era, uh, when he, the leadership battles in Fine Gael, uh, just by listening to people talking in the house and around. And then for me, when I was in, I would have been in, coming through my last couple of years in school when he was Taoiseach. And uh, part of our, my, my first occasion with him was the interview for a school magazine. Oh, right. Uh, and that's, mm. Yeah, so that was mm. my first introduction to John. And he gave us the time. We even have a picture with him. I've managed to cut half his head off where he's in that picture with us as kids. And he was very <laughs> okay. available, very fun. Mm. And, and, and one thing I, I want to say, Michael, is that John Bruton was a fun man. Mm. He really mm. enjoyed a bit of fun. He had a massive laugh. He didn't take things too seriously. He could laugh at himself, could laugh at us. But actually, a very serious man, very strong intellect, very well educated, but a great bit of fun as well. And enjoyed that part of politics too. Mm. You know? And it was always great to be with him on the doors. Now you, he set a high bar in terms of even you talk to all the kind of Fine Gael team around the country and certainly in Mead and mm. all the ones that worked from the start, the neighbour of mine, Kathleen Brady, thought he was God, you know, and she was she became a great influence in my life. But John Bruton, he would bring them on cameras and he'd be hopping gates and hopping walls and moving at pace. Everything was really? just mm. steam ahead. Yeah, yeah. yeah, okay. yeah. So, yeah, yeah. You know, so that's, that's my vision. Of my and I, I always uh, imagined that he, he took you under his wing and guided you and advised you uh, at the beginning of your political career. Uh, is that correct? And did it continue throughout? It absolutely did, John. But in, in, in I have to say, in a very supportive and respectful way. Sometimes I nearly want him to be more teaching you and telling you, but he wouldn't. It would be supportive, it would be advisory, it would be, 
he would discuss things with you, but he would never ever force his view on you or his thoughts on you. He would give you he would give you his view or offer his advice or his guidance, but he never claimed to know everything or that he was right in those things. And mm-hmm. which I have found as a young person coming through politics, and there was always more like him in that as well. But he was very strong on that. He wouldn't say this is what you should do, or I don't know this way do the same. It would be he'd give his advice, he'd give his guidance, and I have to say. I probably of all my colleagues in Fine Gael, all of us would have a similar story. John was always in the background, making a phone call to us, giving us a little nudge in the right direction, making a suggestion to us, a supportive way. And and it wasn't one that you'd be in weekly contact, but you knew if you ever had to be, at any stage, you could pick up the phone to John for advice or guidance or an opinion, and you'd get it. And you'd always get an informed opinion, because if you asked him something... John would say, okay, right, I'll do a bit of homework on that and he'll come back to you if he wasn't up to speed on no. that issue. So it was always an informed opinion, which which, which you would value. But a safe pair of hands, guidance, I mean, I, I'd always be proud of John. And you'd always know that you'd get uh, an honest view uh, and an yeah. opinion. Like, the only thing I want to say is, yep. yesterday around Navin, it was kind of strange because, like, I'm not related to John, but he was a big influence in my life and he's a big, big, big giant in the Fine Gael family. But the amount of people yesterday in Navin that came up to me and we'll shake your hand and say, yeah, we lost a good man today, and the big man is gone, and it's an awful shame. And there were people from all walks of life. Yeah. It was unreal the impact he has had around the county uh, on individuals and families over all the years as well. It was it was great to see, but it was also a sad thing, because he's still a young man to have passed um, so, so early in life. Of course. Yeah. Do, do you think he slept much? <laughs> I don't know when he when he did, yeah. uh, but, I, but but he must have at some stage. Um, but look, I think that's probably anybody in politics. Even you know, it, it, the hours are different and strange, and they're not normal hours. Mm. So I'm sure he found the same something. So we'll have, we'll have to ask some of the family that. Good question, Michael, and and I don't know the answer to it. You know, but he always seemed fresh. You know. Uh, and uh, and was always up for it, so he must have got sleep along the way somewhere. Mm, he must have, I'm sure, uh, but probably needed less than I. Uh, ha, ha, he's uh, well known for uh, his stance on Northern Ireland and the IRA, but uh, he was equally uh, uh, critical or intolerant, if you like, of criminal gangs and established uh, the Criminal Assets Bureau CAB, uh, a, a very important thing in this country uh, which clamped down on a, a lot of uh, the criminal gangs. It certainly did and like a lot of the work that John Bruton was involved in the real benefit of it or the real um, um, success of it comes years later uh, and the Criminal Assets Bureau yes did have an impact at the start but actually it was later in life trying to fight crime and to tackle crime and to hit where it hurts that we're really seeing the benefit of it. Uh, and John would believe in that. I, I I worked in the Department of Enterprise as a minister on two occasions. And you can get a sense there, um, the work that John was involved in many years ago, setting up the enterprise formula. And others were involved over the years as well. I'm not saying John would never want to be the one to take all the credit for anything. But I could see the impact he had there in enterprise policy from an early stage and putting in place um, the right mechanisms and the right processes and agencies to deliver jobs in the long run. And I know he was particularly proud that when he left office as Taoiseach, the country as an economy uh, was going well uh, and there was that over a thousand jobs that we been created. But that was given the resources to run the country. And he always believed in, in supporting enterprise, but ma- making that money then work and making sure you got value out of that taxpayer's money then to, to, to provide services. And what people might know, I know the impact John had 
many, many years ago, working with people with disabilities, working with groups as well, setting up initiatives. And, and when, when, it, when it wasn't the norm, uh, making positive changes as well, like he had an impact in many, many ways. Because if you went to John with an idea or a project or a solution, he would quickly analyse it, would quickly know if it would work, and then would try to go and make, help you get that implemented. Like he was good that way. You know, he was solution-focused, and if, if you had an idea, and it didn't matter to John who the idea was, if, it, if he thought it was good, no matter where it came from, he'd say, right, let's let's try and implement that, you know, and, and that to me is important as well. Like, he did believe in, in delivery and, and try to push things on, and, you know, some people might, people might say in departments he was pushy, and, but that would be right. He, he wanted to make an impact. He wanted to get things done. Mm. Uh, he defined Fine Gael in many ways, didn't he? I think for me, he probably is. I know we talk a lot about Gareth Fitzgerald and many others went before, but for me, John Bruton uh, is Fine Gael and, and I always was Fine Gael. That's probably because of my age coming through. John was the leader of Fine Gael for so long. I know when we go to conventions when I, anywhere in the country and Fine Gael work, John is so well regarded and he walks into a room, the reaction to John, the respect for John. And even yesterday, the amount of members of Fine Gael I would have spoke to across me, to me, me West, I know Helen would say the same. Members are ringing up with their own story and talking about the young John, the early John, maybe having to push his car the odd time when he was very young, you know, and, and how he grew in politics as well. Because there's members of all ages that have been involved with John for a long time. And it's great listening to the stories. You know, you, you pick them up over the years, but it's nice to listen to them again yesterday, tonight and over the next couple of days as well. Because the airways will be full of his, his international work and his success as EU ambassador, his success as a Taoiseach, as minister. And that's really where he served the nation. But as a Fine Gael family, John was a was a major, major part in all of our lives and the Fine Gael party. And, you know, there was good days, bad days, and that's the nature of politics. But John always had a sense of direction and purpose through all those years. And, and I, I've only known John for part of his career. Like the, the man is in politics yeah. since 1969. I was, he was a teacher I was coming through school, so I didn't get to see him in, in all those other roles he had as well. But I did get to see him as party leader uh, and as teacher as well. And, and the impact he's had. And I would say... Mm. I would, would be surprised, Michael. I'd say the majority of current bunch of Fine Gael CDs, even the teacher Leo Valker said it himself, John Bruton is probably the reason we're in politics mm. for a lot of us. Okay. Good, bad, or indifferent now, but yeah. I mean, they like, cannot, you know, yeah. but he would mm. have had that yeah. impact on all of us uh, to bring us through politics mm. and, and mm. be part of our, our learning in the art of politics as well. Yeah, I think that schoolboy interview uh, is. Uh, <laughs> Very, very yeah. interesting. I think uh, that'll resonate with a lot of people as well uh, as that stepping stone, if you like, into your political career. Thanks for joining Absolutely. us this morning. Yeah. And, uh, no, thanks, Michael. Thanks for your time. I look, hopefully we'll have more, we'll have more days to talk about John's impact on our lives in many different ways, you know, and, and I think that's, that's what it's all about, you know. Okay. Well, look, thank you for remembering John Bruton with us uh, this morning. That's uh, Damien English, Fine Gael TD from Mead West. 1800 658. Michael Reed Show, brought to you by AirGrid, managing and planning the national grid so that everyone has electricity when and where they need it. Now, Nigel Farage says his brand of right-wing politics is growing in Ireland. Uh, this is according uh, to the Irish Times, which spoke to him on the fringes of uh, the Westminster launch 
of uh, former Prime Minister Liz Truss's new popular Conservatives faction. Uh, he also criticised uh, the political establishment in this country over its handling of immigration and he praised the size of an anti-immigration march held in Dublin on Monday. Mark Paul, the London editor of the Irish Times, spoke to Nigel Farage, who told him, I've long been surprised that Irish politics in Dublin didn't represent a lot of the conversations that I've heard travelling around the other parts of Ireland. But I think it's beginning to happen now. And he went on to say that he felt the brand of anti-migrant closed border politics would continue spreading here without a doubt. He said, without a doubt, I was just the first to call for it. I don't know. I think uh, that in many ways speaks for itself. Let's speak uh, to John Lannan, chief executive of Duras, a uh, non-profit organisation that works with uh, people coming into this country seeking refuge and asylum. John, a very good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, it was a terrible weekend with the fire up in Britis, that nursing home uh, destroyed as to whether or not it was going to be used uh, for migrants, a terrible crime in itself. Uh, and then to see 300 Gardaí deployed to the streets of Dublin to keep uh, people apart and the hatred Uh, that could be seen in the faces of people and indeed uh, heard in uh, the chanting that went on uh, by some of these people suggesting that Ireland has fallen, all of that sort of thing. Uh, It must be very difficult for somebody uh, doing your line of work uh, to contend with that level of hatred, is it? Um, It is. Good good morning. Um, We're we're in worrying times for sure and and at least you read out there at the the start um, just reminds us that the, the far right and indeed a lot of mainstream politicians are, are trying to put a focus on immigration now while the real issues that, that are facing the country and, and so many people are lack of housing and service depletion across, you know, health, um, education, poor transport, so on and so forth. Um, yeah, we're, we're, we're in worrying times, all right. If you look, you know, back over the last while, we've had close to 20 arson attacks in buildings to be used or rumoured to be used by asylum seekers. And, of course, no arrests for those. We've had protests outside other buildings. We've now actually got over 700 people who came here to seek um, protection um, with no accommodation as, as a result of the difficulties mm. that um, the government are having to set up these. And, and then we have more people, you know, coming out, creating the conditions that lead to those arson attacks. And things are becoming quite unsafe now and, and dangerous. And, and we know from, from our work that, that people are worried, are frightened. Asylum seekers are um, seeing what's happening and are concerned about their own safety. Migrants in general, members of uh, minority groups, are, are also becoming more uneasy as a result of this far-right violence that we're starting to see more of. Indeed. Um, It's worrying as well, I I think, to see how immigration has become such an important issue to people and how politicians have responded. Uh, I think one of uh, the examples uh, that springs to mind immediately uh, is uh, the vote of the councillors in Mayo, wasn't it, um, not to engage any more with the Department of Integration? 
Um, yes, yes, indeed. Um, and, and I'm not sure that immigration is um, such an important issue to people. I think there's a large extent to which people are being told that immigration should be an important issue for them. But really, as I said, the real issues are lack of housing, service depletion across the country. And unfortunately, some of the most vulnerable people um, in, in our society, which are people that come here seeking protection, are taking the, the brunt of people's frustration and people's anger. Yeah. And we do have politicians that are, that are, I have to say, acting irresponsibly as well, individually and collectively in some cases, when, like in Mayo, there was a decision made to um, stop cooperating with a department that's trying desperately to get people off the streets and provide accommodation for them. Mm. Yeah, you talk about housing, John. Um, there's a, a very interesting article uh, written by Richard Curran in the papers uh, this morning uh, about uh, the need for workers here and where they're going to come from. And housing is uh, one particular issue that he points to, saying that we need 280,000 construction workers uh, who will have to be hired or reskilled. That's if we're to meet the targets relating to climate and housing by 2030. Uh, that's a very short time frame. So obviously an awful lot more people are going to have to come to this country to build these houses. Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the housing shortage needs to be addressed. And over the last few years, we've, we've got ourselves into a situation where People coming here seeking international protection haven't got houses. We've had an influx of a unexpectedly large number of people from Ukraine who can't get accommodation. But we've also got um, thousands of Irish people who can't get accommodation as well. We need more housing. We need social and affordable housing for people. And as you say, we need workers to to, to build those Um and and until there are a number of strands we we believe that that need to be taken to to address the um, the, the challenges we've got now in relation to the threats of people behind arson attacks, um, you know, government needs to work on its messaging to ensure people understand that all asylum seekers have a right to come here. Political parties need to be clear and unequivocal on the position when it comes to polling the rights and the safety of people who are who are coming here. We need to see proper investment in communities providing the services that are needed and so on. But ultimately, none of the issues that are being faced in the country are going to be addressed until the housing or, and the um, problem and the accommodation issue is is addressed and as you say we need workers we need people to do that and look we have this we have the conditions we have people coming here who want to work you know they're they're coming here because they're escaping from wars they're escaping from persecution they're coming here for 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 um, a variety of reasons but ultimately people who come here do want to work and get on with their lives yeah uh, and uh, apparently uh, 95 percent of migrants living here are working here. Uh, this, uh, again, I'm taking from Richard Curran's article today, he says uh, over a half a million non-Irish-born people are working in Ireland. That's one in five of all people at work. We created 600,000 jobs in the last eight years. We wouldn't have been able to fill them if we didn't have people moving to the country to take up those jobs. Uh, as a result of that, we're all 
enriched. Living standards, household living standards, he says, have increased by 12%. Uh, the highest proportion of migrants are from Poland uh, and uh, British people follow that. But we need people here, apart from the fact that we're dealing with people who are coming from Ukraine, where there's a terrible war, or other parts of the world, whether that's Syria or Yemen, Afghanistan, as the case may be. In, indeed, um, in, in our experience, you know, people who come here to Ireland out of necessity or who choose to come here to, to Ireland as, um, as, as people who are seeking to, to study or to work do want to do exactly that. There are some barriers for, for people, you know, um, people who come here seeking asylum and cannot get a work permit for the six for six months that they're in the country that needs to be addressed so that they can start to work and um, from from the day that they arrive mm. there's need for more investment on in English classes so that people can get access to to work as well so that they can present themselves and they can they can engage in the workforce there are other things that need to be done as well and one of the difficulties of course is also the fact that there's uncertainty over people's future in the country so people who have come from ukraine don't know what will happen when the temporary protection directive runs out at the end sorry in march of 2025 so we, we we've got a number of aspects to the policy that need to be addressed um, but fundamentally you know as you said you know we we have people arriving in ireland who want to work we have a shortage of workers at the same time so let's join the dots here and 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 make things work yeah um i have to say to you john i know a young man very very well uh this is a young man who is of military age and I can testify without a shadow of a doubt that this young man is of military age and I can tell you that uh, he's decided not to live in his own country he could very well live in his own country there's no problem with him living in his own country but he's decided not to live in his own country uh, and uh, instead uh, has uh, moved to a European country uh, the thing about this young man of military age uh, who's not living in his own country, uh, who's living in a European country, um, is that I would be appalled beyond belief to think that women would find him suspicious because he's male, because he's single, because he's of military age, uh, and that they would be fearful of him without knowing anything about him uh, or ever talking to him. Uh, because... Uh, he's my son and he lives in a different country and, and, and that's what young men do quite often and nobody bats an eyelid it's when it's presented uh, in some cloak and dagger way that it, it suddenly becomes very very suspicious and then people become fearful uh, but it's what we all did as youngsters it's what our children are doing now as youngsters and um, that's the fortunate lot that we are when you talk about young men having to flee for their lives, as is quite often the case, it's a very different thing. And the messages that are feeding this fear and suspicion about these people uh, really uh, is insulting, uh, I think, for 
us as a, a country uh, of such charitable tradition of the Cade Meal of Falcha uh, uh, to not be open to accepting people at face value and treating them that way. Why is it, do you think, that that message is gaining traction, though, when the far right comes out with all of this stuff about young men, single men, military age and all of that? It it is quite boring because, um, as as you say, you know, um, men like women um, as well move for for lots of of different reasons. Um, We know that men come to Ireland to seek um, protection in the same way as women and children have to come here to to seek protection. There is um, nothing different about the people, broadly speaking, who arrive here as asylum seekers and the majority of Irish people, except for the fact that they've been unsafe um, where, um, in, in their home country and that they had to, to flee. Um, there are certainly shades of bigotry and racism behind lots of the, the fear-mongering and, and the, the lies and the misinformation or disinformation that's been spread about people. Um, there's... Um, you know, increasing levels of fear. And I have to say right now, actually, and I was talking with a group of people last night who pointed out, you know, that they are fearful about the potential opening of an accommodation centre near them, not because of the people who will be living in that centre, but because of the fact that there are people now prepared to set those buildings um, alight. They're prepared to do criminal damage. They're prepared to put people's lives at risk. And I have to say that, you know, for, for people anywhere in the country that are thinking about protesting outside a proposed a rumoured accommodation centres. They really have to think carefully about the types of people that they're attracting and that they're bringing into their communities that are that are, um, you know, operating on the basis of of lies and disinformation and are prepared to do criminal damage and put, as I said, other people's lives at risk. Indeed. John, thank you very much as always for joining us today. John Lannan is uh, the chief executive of Duras current needs and ready for our future ones. Uh, Retail Excellence Ireland survey has found that 47% of retailers say that they are not able to cope with the rising costs of doing business. Retail Excellence, as a result, is calling on the government to intervene on the rate of fat that is paid uh, by small businesses. Let's speak uh, to Jean McCabe, Chief Executive of Retail Excellence Ireland. Good morning to you, Jean, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. You're painting this as uh, the perfect storm, I think, are you? I think it is the perfect storm when you uh, consider retailers have seen a 30% increase in the minimum wage in the last four years alone. So it has become a real struggle for a lot of SMEs. And especially when you look at the retail industry, it's the largest employer in the country, 300,000 people. Three out of those, three out of four of those employed are based outside of Dublin and 85% are employed in businesses with less than 10 people. So it's the real struggle of SMEs here where you're seeing an avalanche of costs between minimum wage increases, sick pay, PRSI increase, and also a lot of administrative requirements like enhanced reporting that is coming from revenue that all costs time and money that a lot of small businesses don't have. I think it's important to note here, this 
This discussion isn't, you know, just about, it's not about the minimum wage. That's just a, a factor in the cost base of businesses. Mm. Um, it's just the numbers don't add up anymore. You know, before, once upon a time, five for five equals nine in retail, and you made a little bit of a profit. But currently, you're looking at the case where, you know, five plus five is equal to 12, and you're in the, in the red. And every day, it's costing businesses to open their doors because the numbers just don't add up. And if we're looking down the line of a national living wage, and while it's all very commendable, um, we have to calibrate the cost base of doing business because, you know, the cracks are starting to show hospitality and retail uh, work hand in hand. And we just fear that in six months' time, you're going to really see uh, the knock-on effect of all the cumulative costs that just come at all at one time. And nearly all of your members who you've heard from have taken measures to cut costs. Yeah, we're seeing, you know, a lot of a lot of retailers are having to, you know, reduce our opening hours. They're being really uh, strict with their ro- rosters and ensuring they can make some wage savings where they can. It, a lot of retailers also don't have the luxury. You know, it's not a case of uh, increasing prices to uh, create a margin to ensure that your business is viable. We live in a global economy. So if you're a customer looking to buy a Samsung TV and it's cheaper in Germany versus it is in Ireland, you know, you're going to go to Germany. So that. That option is not there for retailers. They have to look in-house to see where they can cut costs and ensure that the business is viable. Okay, the Taoiseach said last week, I think it was, uh, that he felt uh, that uh, there was the flexibility to look at a a mid-rate for hospitality uh, in terms of what's paid in that. Are you looking to be grouped in with hospitality? Absolutely, and retail and hospitality go hand in hand. They complement each other and they're they're what keep the vibrancy in every small town and village across the country alive. Um, and, you know, we work very much in synergy and retailers are feeling the same pressures that you are seeing in hospitality also. And, you know, with what's coming down the line in the next few years, you're looking at a 50% increase in the minimum wage over five years. There is no industry that can sustain that type of increase and not, um, and not like the, you know, a detrimental effect of that. So, you know, that is probably one of the, the biggest uh, areas that, you know, costs cost for a business. And I think we have to amend that to, to even the scales and to recalibrate. Currently, like, you, you know, it costs any small business to open their door every day is, is leaving them in a negative. And I'm hearing stories of retailers, you know, that employ 10 employees, 63 years of age, and to be able to meet his, his wage bill every week, he's, he's looking at reducing his own salary, which is only 40000 a year. So there's a whole um, heritage piece here where, where those stores that are generations to generations that keep that are dotted, they are in Drogheda town that uh, we have to try and keep alive and uh, amending the VAT rate would certainly give some relief. Okay. Uh, close to the brink for some business, do you think? Yeah, absolutely. We, we've seen we've seen some stores close already um, that are being very pragmatic pragmatic about it. You know, they looked at their numbers and saw they didn't make any money last year. They saw the increase in cost this year, and you know they said to themselves, "Right, I can drag along here for the next six months and and lose half my pension, or I can close up shop now and go at least with that much." So we're certainly starting to see uh, store closures, and I think you can see it on the high street as, as it is. You, you know, there's lots of vacancies. Um, Cork City's been exceptionally. Um, impacted with a lot of store closures there so and the, the challenge is you know a lot of these stores won't reopen again especially those family-run businesses um you know they're there generation to generation if they close they will change the fabric of our landscape forever okay 
All right. Uh, well, you've uh, made your case uh, to government. Uh, I'm sure the government uh, will uh, respond uh, as it will uh, to hospitality. Jean, thank you indeed uh, for joining us this morning. Jean McCabe, Chief Executive of Retail Excellence Ireland. Uh, before we go today, let me bring you some of uh, the comments coming to us. A uh, WhatsApp message from Jean Paula McGovern in Kells saying, Good morning, Michael. I'm listening to your programme. I want to share a memory I have of John Bruton. I applied for a council house in Kells and I contacted every councillor and TD I knew. To my amazement, John Bruton not only had the manners to write back to me to assure me that he would do his utmost to help, but he rang her house. Uh, He phoned also to talk to me and I'll never forget his kindness and his impeccable manners. A true gentleman. May his gentle soul rest in eternal peace. As I say, that's from Gian Paula McGovern in Kells. Thank you indeed uh, for sharing that with us uh, this morning. Uh, Another message uh, comes uh, to us uh, about construction workers uh, from Jack in County Loud. And he said, plenty in this country, they were underpaid and taxed to death, both directly and indirectly with the collusion of the government and the construction industry. So they emigrated uh, to work in a better environment who can blame them, hence the scarcity of skilled labour. Thanks uh, for that, Jack. I think COVID had a big part to do with it, probably a bigger part uh, than that, uh, Jack, because a lot of people working in construction were from Eastern European countries. Uh, And when COVID came, uh, construction closed down and many people went back uh, to Poland or Latvia or wherever they came from, uh, but didn't return uh, or may have uh, gone somewhere else, as the case may be. Um, Another call about school uniforms. There were many calls, uh, one from somebody who says it's Mick who phoned in. Uh, he, He says uniforms are essential, especially for poorer families. Otherwise, some children would be put under pressure with their friends wearing expensive designer wear, even if uh, they remove the crest. It's fairer to have uniforms in schools. It also helps to educate children's social etiquette skills. Thanks uh, for that, Mick. Rosie in Dunle- uh, no, Rosie in Dundalk has been in touch and she says, does uh, the speaker not realise that without uniforms, kids would want to be wearing the best of everything, high-end fashion, and this would put serious per- pressure on parents who would then have to pay out for clothes for their children to go to school so that they could keep up with the others. Thank you very much indeed, Rosie in Dundalk. Uh, we'd uh, another uh, text uh, from somebody who says, I was wondering, will all our ministers, this is Annette uh, saying, I wonder will all of our ministers accept one who will be left at home to keep the fire lit? By f- Will they be flying first class to multiple destinations in the world at the taxpayer's expense or will they be in with uh, the children of a lesser god down in the back seats for St. Patrick's Day, I take it, Annette. I think they're going to be uh, in with uh, the children of a lesser god, (laughs) from what I've read anyway, Annette, as you put it. Thanks indeed for your message. That's our programme for today. Uh, Brian Farley researched. uh, Paul McKenna was in the control tower. I'm Michael and God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. Listen back to the Michael Reed Show podcast on lmfm.ie or the LMFM app. The Michael Reed Show with AirGrid, managing and developing the national electricity grid so that it's fit for our current needs and ready for our future ones.